lights, camera, action, all of that stuff. Because yes, it's the Film File, your favourite podcast, brought to you by two of the best film geeks in the film geekery business. Hello and welcome to the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, and that'll be us. I'm Lee Ford. I'm still Andy Beacon. You had to think about it then. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was thinking of changing my name, but I decided against it at the last. All time. right. <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm good. I, I'm not coughing every five seconds like I was last week. Man, the edit last week as a result of the constant coughing was a nightmare. It has dragged on this this cold stuff. I'm still not 100. Uh, yeah. percent I listened back to last week's show and I could just hear myself hear myself gasping for breath all the way through. I've sounded so yeah. wheezy. We've both been really, really miserable unwell old men really over the past couple of weeks it's a january thing i'm on the mend maybe it's because i've actually had some prime energy drink okay did you resell the empty bottle for a small fortune which we can now sponsor the show with it's bonkers got my hands on a few bottles of them and i've tried a few different flavors and you know what it's rank it's absolutely (laughs) rancid it tastes like watered down vimto it's awful stuff I don't know what the fascination with it is. And it, it describes itself as a rehydration energy drink. And yet I felt thirsty after drinking it. Really don't recommend it. Uh, but all, all the kids are going crazy for it because KSI. Yeah, the kids. Yeah. Um, all this YouTube culture. And yeah, people selling them for stupid values. Well, they're listing them for stupid values on eBay. Whether they're selling them at that price is another yeah. matter. I know that I've seen some bottles going on bids um, for over 10, 10 to 15 pounds. So right. that's what most people are paying. It's two pounds worth of bottle that people are paying up to 15 pounds for. And I genuinely don't get it. And people are buying the empty bottles. Have you sold yours? No, I've, I've, I've still got them around somewhere. I've, I've, I'm tempted to just use them. Like whenever any kids are messing about in the streets, just go, if you, if you go away, you can have this. And uh, <laughs> use them to just dissuade antisocial behavior on the estate. Might work. You never know. Yeah. It's, it's not a nice drink. Um, so if if Prime were thinking, if KSI, you're out there and you're listening, tell me, sorry, mate, we don't want your sponsorship. <laughs> well, we will take it. I, I, I might have to add a um, an aside to that. We'll take it. Just, just don't send us any of your drinks. Yeah, just don't send us any drink. We'll take your money and run. I know we're not going to talk about the show until a, f- a few more weeks have gone, but I just need to mention that I've, re- I've started replaying Last of Us Part 1. Oh, fantastic. As a result of getting so immersed into the TV show. But having watched the TV show, I feel that I need to change the way that I was approaching how I played it last time. Because on the okay. show, it appears that you, you shouldn't be stealthily going around everywhere. You just need to shoot at the first sign of trouble. So uh, I'm going to see if I can, how long I can survive, <laughs> if I just make as much noise as possible. <laughs> hey, well, it's something we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Did you get the remaster or did you get the remake? I'm playing the PS4 version because I've not the got remaster. the PS5 re- like remake version yet. Because i I begrudge paying full price for a game that I've already paid full price for twice. Yes, I'll eventually pick it up and then immerse myself into it because I love that world setting. I love that story. I love how it really draws you in. So let's see how I get on with this playthrough of the game. We'll give it a couple of weeks and then we'll we'll talk about the series up to that point. Give it until about the halfway point, I guess. Yeah, about the halfway point would be a good point to like recap where it's up to. Uh, I had another proud moment this week. What was that? Uh, my daughter went out with her friends the other night and came to meet me from work. And when she met me from work, she told me what they'd been up to. They'd been playing 
Dungeons and Dragons. Oh right, hey, that's what my uh, my kid wants to get into, but he doesn't know who to who to play against or how to play. But he'd like to. It's one of them that I, I just felt my heart lift. It was like my daughter's playing D and D. This is <laughs> She's great. A geek. Oh, she's, she's a, a geek. geek. This is great. I mean, she's denied for ages that she was anything like me, but she does bad dad jokes. She reads comic books. She likes watching films and criticizing them. And now she plays D&D. She's me. Awesome. There's no doubt. We don't even need to do DNA tests. It's obvious that she's my child. <laughs> Fantastic. That was a, a lovely moment, but it wasn't the best news of the week. Which? The best news of the week is... was discovering that we are now listed on our favorite audiobook platform, Audible. Yeah, well, when you sent me the message through yesterday, I I felt like I felt like we were legitimate. We yeah. were le- a legitimate podcast. Not that I felt illegitimate at any point, <laughs> but uh, I felt we uh, uh, we kind of proved ourselves to be on on Audible. If you're listening just casually at the moment and you don't know which service you go for, and you're a subscriber to Audible, why not just add us into your Audible list? Once you've added us in there, every episode will be there, listed for you week by week. Awesome. I if I wasn't already on Audible, I would go on Audible just to be able to do that. Very proud moments this week. Excellent. Hey, and last week we set a Mastodon challenge we for uh, I used or misused the term guilty pleasures for which you kind of <laughs> spanked the back of my hand to say <laughs> they're not guilty pleasures. You enjoy them. It's the commonly referred to term that most people use, but I'm of this small chunk of people who are starting to turn around and saying, let's stop being guilty. Let's stop feeling guilty about getting enjoyment from something just because someone else doesn't like it. Because you shouldn't feel shamed about what films you like just because, you know, even your mates. I mean, this, this is one thing that bugs me is like when you see someone say, oh, I really like that film. And then their mate goes, oh, it was rubbish. And then the other person goes, oh, yeah, it wasn't that good, was it? And shies away from their opinions. And that's where the term guilty pleasure ends up coming from. That feel of feeling of shame that you like it. No, if you like something, no, I say if it's your best mate saying, well, I don't agree with you, you just say, well, that's your opinion. I love it. And this is why I love it. Always defend what you like. Yeah, even if it is the Wicker Man remake or... Batman and Robin. I mean, there's limits. Come on. <laughs> or Jupiter Don't Ascending. <laughs> so how did we do? Uh, I, I, quickly, I mentioned Lost Horizons, which was a 1970s remake of the original 1930s classic, but done as a musical with music by Burt Bacharach. The film starred Michael York, Olivia de Hussey. And I, I love it. Mm. It's not a great movie, and I get all the criticism on it, but darn, if it's on, I'll watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned last week Wild Wild West, which I actually have a lot more love for than, funnily enough, Independence Day. I get frowned at quite a lot for saying that. I, Wild Wild West, I think, is a, a better revisit than Independence Day is. Independence Day, right. I, I, I'm not bothered about watching that again now. I've seen it a few times, but Wild Wild West, mm. you know what? I'll probably slap it on this week because it's in my head now. And one of my favourite films of all time is... A film that I can identify everything that's wrong within there. But it's great. And that's Highlander. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I, I think sometimes it's a case of, you know, it's what we bring to it as spectators. We can go into a movie yeah. and think that it's it's absolutely terrible, but it either speaks to us or we had a good time watching a bad movie or... You know, there are some movies which are... The Room, for instance, is is one of yeah. those films which is a terribly made film. However, yeah. you know, if you've enjoyed it, you've enjoyed it for a certain a certain reason. Yeah, Highlander wasn't a very critically well-received at its time, and it, it, you know, it didn't pull in a huge audiences. But it's one of those films that 
I can identify who the target audience are for it. And there's so many people who've been put off by it because of the negativity around it that I've said, I think you'll get something from this. And they've loved it as well. So I, I just think it's a good bit of fun. It's great. I love every aspect of it. And we've spoken many times about my love for Highlander. And I will never, oh, yeah. never fade in my love for that film. But over to you folk out there. So over on Mastodon, Alexei Pagliuca, Society. Matt likes Society. Yeah. Very recently, Babylon. Maniac, both versions. Okay. Most of the rest of the films that they would have suggested are horror films, which are well regarded by horror fans, but not so much by the general critical consensus. Babylon is a one that I agree with. I mean, the critics don't seem to have taken to it, but it's scoring well with folk that I know. And I'm firmly, as you know, in the corner of the folk who enjoyed it. So I completely agree there. Mevs Matz, who um, is a regular contributor to the discussions. Definitely the American Pie director DVD sequels. Ooh. Okay. That's a personal choice. It's a personal choice. I don't think they're as bad as what everyone says. It's that whole aspect of you're so used to this core group of characters that you suddenly get the DVD sequels that don't have that core group of characters and you get the jarring comparisons. I think they're okay, but they're just repeating the formula. On the horror front, they've got The Craft Legacy. Definitely with them on that one. Black Christmas, 2019's version. The Forest, Truth or Dare, Polaroid, Countdown. And another one that I thoroughly agree with, Netflix version of Death Note. I never saw that. Never saw it. Which I have a lot of lot of love for. Um, Dark Corner Reviews liked Lady in the Water, which no one else seems to enjoy. Yeah. Which really. I replied with, thank you. I thought I was alone in my liking of that film. It's got flaws. It's a very flawed film. Most notably, M. Night Shyamalan not only inserting himself into the film, but making himself one of the central characters. He can't act. Please stop doing this, M. Night. You can't act. I, I like the ideas of it. I like the themes. I like it. it was a modern day fairy tale. And so, yeah, Dark Honest Reviews, really good suggestion, which uh, Jonathan Poritsky also agreed with. He said that it's bananas in a good way. He wishes more films like that existed. Shyamalan swings for the fences and gets so much right. But where it misses, it really misses. Completely sums it up. Uh, GTM Los Angeles said threesome. Maybe it was the music or the moment. And also seconded Wild Wild West. And an honorary mention for Problem Child. And Aussie at Mastodon World. Ooh, so many good ones to choose from. Men, which is quite a recent one mm. that got a bit of a critical drubbing. Lucky, the party's just beginning. The man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. And Mainstream. For most, my opinion is much higher that they're considered meh, but I adore them. The one exception is Mainstream, which everyone hated, but they think is brilliant. So great responses on Mastodon, but we also popped it out onto a few other social channels. Over on Twitter, Dennis Obi said Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Super Mario Brothers, just to name a few. Wow, Super Mario Brothers. Whew. Yeah, that was awful. I don't remember having a, a, a lousy time with it, though. I've only ever seen it the once, I'll be, I'll be honest. It's one of those films that I just think is, it's a muddled mess that didn't really know what to do with the source material. And so it changed it all. Kip Kalal gave us Raimi's Spider-Man 3. Is it perfect? No. Chock full of studio old. interference? Yes. Yeah. Has James Franco? Unfortunately, yes. But the Raimi-ness still managed to shine through. Thinks it's judged poorly because it follows a masterpiece. I mean, the second film was a masterpiece and was always going to disappoint. And But they personally love it. And yeah, it's not awful. It, it falls apart because you can see, for me, because you can see that Raimi never wanted to bring Venom into the series. He'd never liked Venom. He likes his classic villains. All the Sandman stuff is amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. It's just once that black costume comes into it, it goes very Raimi and very comical, but it kind of loses its feet along the way. And uh, when I popped it out on my Facebook feed, uh, obviously I got responses from a few of few of my close friends and colleagues. Lee Leary, 
And I've already mocked him for this one. Uh, Season of the Witch. Lee is a big Nicolas Cage fan. Nicolas Cage can do no wrong. I, I basically pointed out to him, I guess the Cage factor is the main draw. And he said, yeah, he could have picked a few of them, but he figured that that would get get him less of a tongue lashing. Well, yeah, if you had picked Wicker Man, we'd have completely pulled you up on that one. But um, it's, Season of the Witch is not, it's not bad. It's not bad. If you're a fan of Nicolas Cage's eccentricities, then things like Season of the Witch tick all the boxes that you need and you can get enjoyment from them. If you go in expecting a, a serious film, you've got no chance. So I think it's a case of how you approach the film as well. Stephen Blaine Young. Hi, Stephen. You're going to be excited in a couple of weeks, aren't you? Um, <laughs> Stephen really likes Cloud Atlas. I've never seen it. I've never seen Cloud Atlas. It didn't land for me. It, was, it wasn't awful. It was just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an odd film. Deborah Davies gave us Hancock. Um, I remember that being quite well received by audiences on release. I know that critics didn't completely gravitate towards it, but it's one of those films that retroactively people have hated more and more. Because I, I remember enjoying Hancock when I first saw it. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, but I, I think that, yeah, it is one of them that we've seen so many other superhero takes over the years that have been better that people have retroactively gone, eh, it wasn't all that. But at the time, it was fresh. It was something different. It was something we hadn't seen. Um, Dave Van Gogh decided to send us a, a, a whole War and Peace list of uh, films. So um, I'll just quickly rattle off his main ones. Assassin's Creed, whoa. X-Men Apocalypse. Black Adam, Spider-Man 3, Escape Plan, Ghost in the Shell, the live-action version. I'm with you on that, Dave. I think that got an unfair drubbing. Chappie, I've got a lot of love for Chappie. Didn't on the first watch, but when I revisited it, I loved it. And then it's one that I've seen a couple of times since. The Robocop reimagining of recent years. Yeah, I'm a a fan of that. Um, Its only problem is that it gets compared to the original Robocop. Don't compare it. Watch it as its own entity. Great film. Butterfly Effect, Double Team. And Rocky Four. I think he put Rocky Four in there because he knows what my feelings on Rocky Four are. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I think that it, sh- it was made in the 80s. It's very 80s and it should have stayed in the 80s. So I think he's thrown that one in just to provoke a response. So I'm not going to rise to that one, Dave. <laughs> I see nobody's mentioned Howard the Duck at this point. I was tempted to throw that in because I know it's bad, but yeah. I, it's it's got a cheeky charm to it that makes me kind of half enjoy it every time that I decide to give it another shot. Just in defence of Howard the Duck, without Howard the Duck, we would never have had Photoshop because it was created in order to disguise the wires used for all the puppets and the <laughs> special effects techniques. And therefore, uh, we wouldn't have had The Matrix without Howard the Duck. Well, there you go. So thank you, Howard the Duck. Everyone should go out and buy a copy of Howard the Duck now to show their appreciation. If we want to talk about films that are bad that you keep going back to, we already spoke about one in one of our deep dives last year when I was set, I pointed out how many times I've watched Sucker Punch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you I, I still don't like that film, but I still insist that there's something in there that I like and keep going back to revisit it. And it's, it's one of those weird attractions. So, yeah, whatever your guilty pleasure to use that term whatever your enjoyment you get from something that other people don't enjoy be proud of it embrace it talk about it there's often times that me and lee talk about films that we neither of us agree with Booker we don't Banzai. agree with each other Booker Banzai. <laughs> um, and we occasionally force each other on the deep dives to watch something that we don't want to but you know <laughs> this is what Banzai it's all about piece. because it gives us something to talk about sometimes it's better when there's conflict between our opinions, because it's great to get the appreciation for someone else's point of view, rather than just, I like that film. Oh, so do I. Cool. 
move on. So for this week's Mastodon Challenge, and I'm I, I'm thoroughly enjoying the responses, and hello to all the new people who, who've joined in, as well as uh, you uh, fellow fans. This week, if you were going to introduce, say you've, you've got a best friend, or you're on a date, or even with your partner, uh, you're going to say, I'm going to sit you down and show them a horror movie that they've never seen. What would their introduction uh, to horror be? in your personal opinion, what movie would you show them when you say this is a great horror movie? For me, it's always John Carpenter's The Thing. If I'm going to say you want to see something fresh, you want to see something different, sit down and watch John Carpenter's The Thing. And if they don't like it, I can tell that they're not the person uh, I want to spend any time with. I'd have to think about that one. Um, there's a few films that I've kind of got bubbling at the back of my brain to pick from, but I'll have to think. It, it's that whole aspect of it's the first time they're watching horror. How do you engage them with the horror genre without putting them off at the same time? So yeah. I'll have my response for that next week. And hopefully we'll have some wonderful responses from all you people on the social communities out there. But we do that, don't we? If we, uh, you know, you meet somebody for the first time and you kind of introduce them to your music um, mm. or you introduce them to your uh, to your movie collection, there's, there's kind of one film that you would show. So look forward to hearing uh, your responses. Right. Let's get on with the show. And what do we have for you on this week's show? Well, of course, we've got lots and lots of chat, lots of goss. We've got deep dives. And this week's deep dive is into... The well and truly very British Carry On series of films. Behave. Oh, behave. We've got reviews into... The Fablemans, Spielberg's latest entry into the world of cinema. You People, which landed on Netflix this past weekend. And Teen Wolf, the movie, which landed on Paramount+. Plus. I'll be taking a look at Lockwood & Co, which also landed on Netflix this week. But before any of that, let's hear what's the latest news and the latest box office. So as ever, let's start off with the box office. Andy, I'm pretty much guessing that Avatar is still up there. Avatar The Way of Water holds its crown for a sixth weekend in the US. Comes in first place with 16 million this weekend. Puss in Boots The Last Wish takes another 10.5 million to add on to its already impressive total worldwide of 336 million. New entry in at number three is Pathan, the latest Bollywood action film starring Sharat Khan. A Man Called Otto took 6.7 million and Megan finished off the top five in fifth place with 6.3 million. Here in the UK, Avatar Way of Water, 2.1 million, still going very strong. Pathan performing fantastically with 1.96 million in the UK. Sharat Khan certainly has a fan base in the UK. Plane lands in third place with 1.1 million. The Fablemans takes 1.06 million. And Megan rounding off the top five with 749,000. Avatar overall worldwide so far has taken 2.12 billion and it's now positioned fourth in the all-time box office lifetime totals. So I'm not knocking Avatar because it's deserved to do very well, but do you think a part of the attraction is there's, well, there's nothing else out there right now? You could argue that, but then there's been other times over the past few years where there's been no competition against a big release, but the big release has still dropped off significantly and not made money. So something is drawing people back to the world of Pandora. And I think it is the, yeah, it is the beauty of that imagined world is drawing people in. For the past decade, when it's been said that there's going to be a second Avatar film, you've seen all the negativity online. But I think this is an example of why we should ignore 
what be, what generates traffic online because all the negativity about Avatar hasn't stopped it passing two billion. So clearly, the people who hate the film are only a small fraction. Which you know, I could throw and say that means that another campaign that thinks that they're really big and massive hashtag restore the Snyderverse. Maybe you're not as big and massive as you are because the rest of the general public have completely different opinions to you. Right. I think it shows that the general public are not reflected by online chat. But now he's got the fourth place in the top five box office and it's looking very likely to be taking the third place in the coming weeks. It means that Cameron now has three films in the top five. The original Avatar is still the top spot. Second place is taken up by Avengers Endgame. And then there's Titanic and then Avatar Way of Water. Now, Avatar Way of Water looks to be threatening to sink Titanic down to fourth place. However, we do know that cunningly, James Cameron is re-releasing Titanic (laughs) in just over a week's time. So the guy is going to be competing with himself for that third place on the all-time box office. I mean... Come on, he might as well just re-release all his films at this point in time and just just rake in the cash. It's got it's basically going to be t- still taking in the money at least for the next few weeks. Once Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania comes out, that's when the upheaval is going to begin. Yeah, there is only a certain amount of time that a, a film, no matter how well received, can stay in that position for so long. Yeah. Uh, Titanic, on the other hand, is I think the people who want to see Titanic have seen Titanic, and I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that a newer generation will discover Titanic. I think it. I think it's specific to the time it came out. And it's. It, I think it's only getting a 3D re-release as well. Okay. I'm not sure that everyone wants 3D. I know it had a 3D re-release a few years ago, but in 2012, when they initially did the first 3D re-release, it did do another 350 million. Okay, we'll see. We might be looking at some interesting, interesting numbers to come. If anybody's ever going to prove me wrong, then it's going to be James Cameron. Yeah. The only competition that Avatar Way of Water's got at the moment is all the Oscar-friendly films, all the awards-heavy films, your Fablemans, your Babylons, etc., which segues nicely into we now have the final list for what the Oscar nomination categories all are. As we know with the Oscars, I try to watch everything that's been nominated across every category the Lord's work, every year, and I'm already on to a really good start this year because I've already seen a fair chunk of them. I've started tracking down the more obscure ones or the harder to find ones, and I've started using our Instagram account to highlight these finds. If you go onto our Instagram account, Filmfile UK, you'll see in the stories, I will post them out, but then the stories will transfer down into a highlight section of Oscar Watchers, and in that, it'll have what my rating is for it and where you can find it. So what services is, this is predominantly for the UK audience out there because I don't know where you can find it internationally. But, you know, I'll be pointing out if these things are on Netflix, BBC iPlayer, Amazon Prime, Paramount, whatever service they're on. So if you're wanting to track down the shorts, the documentaries, etc., and I've found them, go onto our Instagram channel and have a look through the highlights. Okay, starting with Best Picture. A film that I think surprised everyone to have found its way to such a claim, and that's All Quiet on the Western Front. You'll know that I positively reviewed this film when it came out. Will it win Best Picture? I'm not sure, but it is a solid entry. I think the one criticism that you could possibly have of it, of it is that the production values are so high, it doesn't feel dirty enough as a war film. It feels a bit too glossy at times and kind of diminishes the impact of the horror of the trenches. But when it gets it right, it was powerful, it was moving, and it was a solid adaptation of the book. 
in the other Best Picture ones, Avatar Way of Water is in there. Which is a surprise, to be honest. Both that and Top Gun Maverick, which are in there for Best Picture. I'm not convinced that they're in there for any reason other than a popularity thing. They know how popular these films are. And so they've made it into the final shortlist to basically show that Oscars isn't completely separated from like the public opinion. Yeah, which has been criticised about in the past. Banshees of Inner Sheeran. Which is my favourite, which is what I'm holding out for. It's kind of the outsider favourite, but it's becoming more and more of a possibility as it gets closer to it. Elvis is in there. I watched this for the first time oh, this really? past week. It was a lot better than I was anticipating. It's very Baz Luhrmann and I thoroughly loved it. Is it yeah, the best, th- best picture out of these? No, it's not. It's not my best picture out of this list. No. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Very, very strong contender. Yeah, I think it's between this and Banshees. I think because diverse cast, it is an absolutely unique film. Um, yeah, I think it's between this and Banshees for me. Tar, which I positively reviewed last week. I don't think it's best picture material. I think it's possibly going to win in uh, one of the other categories. The Fablemans. Now, no spoilers. But my review later on should tell you what I think its chances are. And the fact that it's Spielberg and sometimes it's it's about honouring the name, if not necessarily the film. We saw that with Scorsese. Triangle of Sadness is in the running for Best Picture. And I've not seen Triangle of Sadness. It's no. on my list to watch over the next week. And Women Talking is the final one for the Best Picture. So it's a strong and very diverse category. Mm. Again, no horrors in there because we don't do horrors uh, when it comes to Best Picture for some reason because horror isn't worth mentioning, even though there's been some very strong horrors this year. Moving on to Best Director. And you'll start to see the similar names of the similar films through these categories. Banshees of Inner Sheeran, Martin McDonough, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Daniels, Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Ruben Ostlund for Triangle of Sadness. I'm going to go with Spielberg. I think, again, it's going to be, I think it's going to be his year. Yeah, I I think Spielberg's a pretty safe bet on this one. Best lead actor, Austin Butler for Elvis. Up until, up until I watched Elvis this week, I couldn't see that. Now I can well and truly see it. The outsider favourite is Colin Farrell for Banshees of Inner Shimmer. Oh, really? Who's been scoring well in other awards. Brendan Fraser for The Whale. They like Paul Mescal like- for After Some. And uh, Bill Nye for Living. Uh, lead actress, my favourite, Kate Blanchett Tar. Uh, Anna D. Almas for Blonde, which she was good in, but the film, uh, the film, the film wasn't. wasn't well received. <laughs> then you've got the controversial entry in there. Andrea, Andrea Riseborough. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the controversy. So the controversy around it has led to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences now conducting a review of campaign procedures because one particular nomination, Best Actress for Andrea Riseborough, which only grossed 27000 at the box office, had universal praise for the film and her performance since it premiered at um, festivals, but was kind of an unknown entity. No one has heard of this film. It's come from nowhere. It was seen as a huge surprise, especially when there was more heavily campaigned films, such as The Woman King and Till. I mean, Till in particular seemed like a shoo-in for this one, uh, with Daniel Deadweiler getting uh, nominated, but they missed out. And questions have since arisen from rival campaigners regarding the targeted campaigning conducted by supporters on behalf of the actress and whether it potentially violated any rules or guidelines that are established by the AMPAS. Uh, Variety indicates that no one has filed a formal complaint, but it has been a lot of grumbling going, how's this film that no one's watched suddenly being watched by all the people to select it? And they think there might have been a bit of like, oh, go on, I'm your friend. You do this for me. In order to get them into I mean, the shortlist, great actor. I think she's an amazing talent. It's not to dis- disregard like her as an act- actor or the film itself, 
But it's the fact that no one's seen this film makes it hard to believe that enough people said, yes, this should go through. Others on that list are Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, which I think is is potentially your favourite, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I'd generally be happy with anyone in there getting that award. Like you say, Anna Diarmas was great in Blonde, just the rest of the film wasn't. Yeah. She was the only thing that made it almost worth watching. Uh, supporting actor, Brendan Gleeson, Banshees of Inisherin, Brian Tyree, Henry Causeway, Judd Hirsch, The Fablemans, Barry Keoghan, Banshees of Inisherin, and Kihu Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think it's open. It could be absolutely anybody on that list. Yes, it could go any direction in this one. Supporting actress, Angela Bassett, Black Panther, Hong Chow, The Whale, Kerry Condon, Banshees of Inisherin. Jamie Lee Curtis, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Stephanie Sue, Everything Everywhere All at Once. My money at this point in time is on Kerry Condon. Now, they'll either go for a bit of diversity. Jamie Lee Curtis is a factor because she's uh, uh, never won anything. Mm. So it could be the honorary Oscar that she gets for that. Or Angela Bassett, because again, she's been nominated so many times. In the Best Adapted Screenplay, we've got All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, Living, Top Gun Maverick and Women Talking. I'm baffled with how the best adapted screenplay actually works. How can Top Gun Maverick and Glass Onion, which are effectively sequels, be yeah. considered adaptations? Because they're kind of original films. Yeah, I don't I get mean, it. Does this mean that, a, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania could get adapted screenplay next year because it's part of a huge franchise? I don't get those inclusions. I mean, they're both great films. I'm not yeah. dissing them as films, but I just, I'm baffled by their use of the term adapted screenplay here. Because adapted screenplay, for me, suggest adapting it from another media, yeah, be it TV, source. novel, or even music. It's adapted. Original screenplays, yeah. however, Banshees of Inner Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, and Triangle of Sadness. That's, I, I can't even pick. Mm. Triangle of Sadness is getting a lot of uh, a lot of mentions. Is it going to be the outside choice? It's funny enough, I did see it on a list of one of the worst films of the year. So it's, it's not a universal love for it. Cinematography, which is something that I always love. I love cinematography. All Quiet on the Western Front. Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Elvis. I mean, this is a great category. Tar. And then, obviously, Empire of Light. Roger Deakins. Is he the shoe-in for this one? For me, it's, it's always Deakins because I think he's the greatest cinematographer of our time. But he has won previously. So I think uh, they'll give it to somebody new, somebody we've not seen before. I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Mandy Walker for Elvis. Best animated feature film, which this is a strong category. Every year with the best animated feature, there's usually something that stands out as like, that's the definite winner. But this year, and there's five in it this year. I think there was only three in there last year, if I remember correctly. Yeah. There's five films to pick from. And we've got Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, The Sea Beast, Turning Red, yeah, uh, Marcel Lachelle with Shoes On, and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. And all of these, the ones that have seen, man, they, they are great films. I mean, Turning Red, we've both got love for. Sea Beast, I've got a lot of love for. And Pinocchio, I've got a huge amount of love for. I'm going to call it on Pinocchio. I'd want it to be Pinocchio because of the love and the detail that's gone into that stop motion. I think, you know, the, the whole passion that you can see through every aspect of it works a treat. So the last one we're going to talk about is best international feature film. All Quiet on the Western Front. Argentina, 1985. Close. EO, which is a film about a donkey that gets released this week. The Quiet Girl from Ireland, which I've heard lots of lovely things about. I'll be getting that watched over the coming weeks. The rest of the categories, you've got documentaries, short films, editing, etc. 
I'm not saying that they're anything less and we're not going to talk about them. We will talk about them more after the Oscars or on the run-up to the Oscars when we start to make our final predictions as to how it's all going to go. All the list is online. Get it checked out. I think it's a really, really strong year for most of the categories. There's a lot that I really can't pick from. So we've got a lot of news. Let's dive in to some of the headlines over the last week. Sticking with awards and the Razzies made a huge mistake this week. Mm, saw that. Some people say that the Razzies themselves are a mistake. I, I do. I got them when they first started because it was kind of like the, you know, let's go against all the pomp and circumstance and let's, like you know, shine a light on that not everything's great, but in a jokey, fun way. But I think there's times, particularly over the past decade, that it seems to have got vindictive and spiteful. Yeah. And it's kind of lost that fun charm element that it's gone for. And it just seems like just pure negativity. And last year, there was a whole thing when uh, Bruce Willis won the award for all of his multiple films that were terrible. And then they, they retracted it because they, like the news came out that he was he's actually, you know, he's done so many bad, bad films because he needs to get some money, because he's stepping away from acting due to illness. And at least the Razzies acknowledged, like, whoa, we shouldn't have done that. But this year, surely they should have learned their lesson. Because when you throw a 12-year-old actress under the bus as the worst actress, you really, really need to look at yourself in a mirror and ask yourself, what are you doing with your life? Uh, Ryan Keira Armstrong. Now, we've got no love for that Firestarter film from last year. It was terrible. But to throw a 12-year-old actress in to the category as worst actress. She's 12 years old. It, it's just pure bullying. Mm. It's disgraceful. Or any remaining love that I had for what the Razzies bring and the fun that you, you, you can have with it, it's gone now. I do not care about that at all now. It's just mean-spirited, I think. Um, not well thought through. You can just see, um, in my head, there's a bunch of pros trying to make decisions and go, hey, let's throw the kid in. The Razzies have reverted the decision and have said that in future, they will impose an age limit for people they seek to nominate in future years. Armstrong's name is going to be removed from the final ballot. And they said that sometimes you do things without thinking, then you're called out for it, and then you get it. It's why the Razzies were created in the first place. The recent valid criticism of the choice of the 12-year-old Armstrong as a nominee for one of our awards brought to our attention how insensitive we've been in this instance. No, you should have known that from the start. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's an easy one, isn't it? You can't backpedal and like try to say, oh, it was just a mistake. No, it's a 12-year-old child. No matter how bad a film is, I will never, never drag the child actors through the mud because, let's be honest, if a film's bad, it's usually because of other factors, not yeah, the cast. Absolutely. The Razzies are done for me now. Razzies, if you're listening, you're dead to us. You're dead to us. Uh, in other news, Barbarian director, my favourite horror film of last year. Uh, Zach Krieger's next film is a horror epic titled Weapons. Yes, uh, New Line Cinema have bagged the rights to it after a very intense bidding war. I mean, of course it was going to be intense. Barbarian just set the world afire. And so every studio wants to get a piece of his action. Craig has reportedly scored an eight-figure deal to write and direct the new film, which is a number more than double the entire budget of his previous film. Uh, and it's an unprecedented deal in modern times for a filmmaker who only has one movie under their belt. Uh, the deal's got several stipulations. It's got a guaranteed green light. It's guaranteed a theatrical release, a controlling interest in a back-end pot, and Craig receiving final cut pending a threshold being met during test screenings. So this is really, really something different, like we said, for someone who's only got one film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy'd worked in television, I believe. Uh, it's not wasn't the first thing he directed, so he'd, he'd got a track record, but as a, a feature film. Uh, yeah. I, I, and you know, you know, my love for for Barbarian. 
Uh, you're a big fan of the bear, aren't you? I am, yes. So did you know that Ao Edabiri has joined the cast of Marvel's Thunderbolts? Yeah, uh, she she is marvellous, absolutely marvellous in The Bear. Really a standout character. I mean, as great as Jeremy, uh, yeah, The Bear focuses mainly on Jeremy Allen White's Carmen character, but she's the secondary central character in the whole thing. So much energy. So much skill in delivery. Very excited to see her joining the MCU. I mean, at this point in time, pretty much everyone's joined the MCU at some point. <laughs> yeah, it does look that way. It's not one of those things now where people say, oh, I don't want to do a superhero movie, apart <laughs> from Stephen Dorff this week. Oh, yeah, who's basically still dissing things because nothing, you know, he still thinks that Blade was the only decent comic book movie. He still refers to Christopher Nolan's films. He says that Christopher Nolan's films are great because Christopher Nolan reimagines Tim Burton's Batman. It's like, are you not aware that Batman as a character has been around since before then, <laughs> Stephen? You don't know what superhero movies are. And he's admitted that he doesn't watch them anyway. So he's criticising these things that he doesn't watch. Getting back to Thunderbolts, it has been described as some kind of a sequel to Black Widow. There you go. That's all we know. We don't know any more at this point. As soon as we know more, we'll let you know. Sticking kind of with the Marvel slants, there's been further details about Jeremy Renner's accident that oh, we've yeah. reported on a couple of times. Um, he's he's still recovering quite well and still very positive spirited. But we now know from a report filed last Friday through public records, revealed that the parking brake of the piston bully snow groomer wasn't engaged and would have stopped the vehicle. According to reports, the machine began sliding, causing Renner to exit the vehicle without setting the emergency brake. Although the piston bully had some mechanical issues, it's believed, based on our mechanical inspection, that the parking brake would keep the piston bully from moving forward. When Renner attempted to stop or divert the piston bully to avoid injury to his nephew, he was pulled under the vehicle by the track and run over. So the guy jumped out to get his nephew out of the way. Real life hero. The more that you hear about Jeremy Renner, the more you just realise that he is that heroic character that he's played in so many films. He is Hawkeye in real life. <laughs> uh, this was interesting. Uh, no Time to Die and Fleabag writer Phoebe Waller-Bridge is apparently yeah. penning a new Tomb Raider TV series for Amazon. Now, we know that the Tomb Raider sequel fell apart. The rights were in free fall. Amazon had picked them up. Um, we didn't know if it was going to be uh, a movie, but now it appears to be a TV series. So it is anything as good as her first series, Killing Eve, because once she left, it went off the boil. Can't wait. I think it's. I think there's lots of room to do a great Tomb Raider show. Uh, yeah, Amazon have teamed up with DJ2 Entertainment in the rights deal that delivers not only a new Tomb Raider feature film and at least one more video game in the franchise, alongside this announced TV series. Now, feature film-wise, we don't know if Vikander will return because she's now out of contract on it because so much time has expired. It, I think it'd be great if she would reprise the role. She was great. I'd also be happy to see a complete recasting and a reboot. Uh, the plan is for all three of the projects, the game, the film, and the TV series, to be interconnected, similar to how the MCU is in interconnected in such a unique way these days. And that could just be the start. The source for the trade says that the pact will be amongst the largest commitments that Amazon has ever made after its massive spend on the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power series. Uh, Walla Bridge is attached to write the script for the TV series. She's not involved in the film or game at this point, but she's a fan of the property. I wouldn't be surprised that it, they'll also offer her to help with scripting the film if she delivers decent enough scripts for the series. And why wouldn't she? She's such a great writer. Talking of fans, you and I, of course, big fans of Stephen King. And one of those stories that keeps coming back, it brought back to the screen more than a zombie, and that's Children of the Corn. 
So there have been multiple versions of Children of the Corn. There was the 80s, early 90s uh, franchise, which after Wild Bear, no resemblance to Stephen King's original short story. Well, it, uh, it became no. Corny of the Children by the end of it, didn't it? <laughs> yes, it did. Like that. <laughs> um, there was another version about uh, 10, 15 years ago. Now, director Kurt Wimmer, and if the name sounds familiar, he did Equilibrium with Christian Bale. This film version was shot just before the pandemic, way back in 2020, and was shelved. Uh, but reports are that the remake has been so well received that it's going to get a cinema outing just before being made available for on-demand and digital. Okay, interesting. We'll we'll keep a lookout for that. Yeah, I mean, there was the, the 1984 version that we mentioned, and then let's never mention the 2009 remake. Um, in other adaptations news, now last year I had fun with uh, Fletch in Confess Fletch with John Hamm. The character of Erwin M. Fletcher brought to the screen after all these years and all this speculation as to whether it be revived. And it looks like there's a possibility that we might get more Fletch sometime down the line. Oh, that's good. I'm still to see it. Matola has revealed that he's been hired to write a sequel based on Gregory McDonald's novel Fletcher's Fortune. And this past week, he revealed on Instagram that he's begun work on that script, saying in post, it might never get made. I mean, he knows how this industry has worked around the Fletch franchise, clearly, but he's going to try his best. Um, in the book, Fletcher's Fortune, the FBI is on to Fletch for tax evasion, often the choice of either jail or attending a journalism conference to work as an undercover spy for them. And he sets out in search of a scoop on a prominent and scandalous newspaper tycoon who ends up dead. I've only recently listened through the audiobook of Fletcher's Fortune, and I really, really want to see John Hamm in that role again doing this adaptation of the story. I think it'll be a shame if John Hammer only had the one outing of the character because even Chevy Chase managed to get two out of it. So we know that Doctor Who has had uh, a deal with Disney Plus for its American distribution. And that means a much bigger intake on the budget. But Russell T Davis has confirmed that because of the deal with Disney Plus, that means the franchise is finally to expand into a new slate of spin-offs. Now, we have had spin-offs from Doctor Who before. We had the Sarah Jane's Adventures, and some of us even remember the K-9 series. K-9 and company. Uh, as well as Torchwood. But I'm kind of guessing that Disney Plus has potentially pushed the idea to expand Doctor Who now that they've got the streaming rights outside of Doctor Who. And this isn't the first time that uh, Russell T. Davis himself has shared hopes to expand the series beyond the core. I remember him talking about a Young Doctor series at one point. And he's even suggested uh, ideas like the Nyssa Adventures, a reference to the classic Doctor Who companion. So at this stage, just ideas being bandied around, but we'll wait and see. Absalom Dark, Dalek Hunter, come yeah, on. Come on. See, Give me an Absalom Dark great series. Great video game. Wouldn't that have made a good video game? It would have made a great video game. Um, but I used to love the Absalom Dark strip in the Doctor Who magazine. Mm. It was just something very different in the Doctor Who universe. Let's see it. Come on. Oscar winner Christoph Waltz is going to follow in the footsteps of all of the actors who are getting on a bit, who are now going to be kick-ass action heroes, as he's now signed up for the action comedy Old Guy, which will be helmed by Connor and Expendable 2 director Simon West. The film is penned by Greg Johnson, and we'll see Waltz play an ageing contract killer named Terry Eubanks, who still believes he's the best at what he does. He's stuck in a rut and thrilled when he gets put back in the field by the company, only to learn that he has to train a new Gen Z prodigy assassin with an attitude. The great Paddy Considine and Mena Massoud are starring in the boxing drama Giant, which is a biopic of the Prince Nazim Nazhemed story. Stick with biopics, the Madonna biopic, which has been circulating around and it was in various stages of production over the past year or two, has now been scrapped by Universal. 
The studio offering no comment on the reason, but they say it's entirely dead and no longer in development. The Joy of December, Violent Night, is getting a sequel. Oh, yes, heard about that. I mean, this was going to happen anyway. I mean, the film was made on 25 million budget and raked in more than 75 million worldwide and got a very good critical response and the public took to it. Speaking recently, uh, the director confirmed that the sequel is happening. We're talking about it. We're just making deals and getting everything in order. They've got time to really crack the script and figure out the story. They've got some ideas and they've been talking about where they want to take it and what they want to see. The writing team of Pat Casey and Josh Miller have said the stuff that they left on the floor, like what does the North Pole look like? Who's Mrs. Claus? What do elves look like within this universe? Uh, But story wise, I think we have a really, really cool idea that expands on the world and scope, but still keeping that tone that we love from the first one. We know that the first one was basically Die Hard uh, with Santa. Why not set this one in an airport and just do Die Hard (laughs) 2? We could have rain, reindeers landing on the runway. We mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago about the allegations that had emerged about Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland, who is facing charges of domestic battery and false imprisonment. It seems now that network Adult Swim has confirmed that we'll no longer be working with Roiland, but has said to be continuing to make the sci-fi comedy cartoon without him. Uh, They've issued a statement that says Adult Swim has ended its association with Justin Roiland. Rick and Morty will continue. The talented and dedicated crew are hard at work on season seven. I'm not sure how what I feel about this. Yeah. He's been charged, but there's no... It's not gone to court yet, as far as I know. I'm not convinced that this is a good idea. I mean, fine, I get them separating and distancing themselves from him because, you know, regardless of whether... We need to see how the court case plays out and how it all plays before we start throwing mud. But it can be damaging to the brands. However, he provides the voices. Mm. That is his characters. His voice is so notable that I don't think an imitation voice will quite work as well. I'm not sure this is a good idea to continue with it. If you're getting rid of Royland, just don't do any more Rick and Morty. Yeah, I agree. So that's just about it for the news for this week. And sadly, of course, we always have to do this, uh, as we mentioned, two uh, passings. So sad passings. The first one is Lance Kerwin. Now, not necessarily a name that you're going to remember, but you'll remember his performance as Mark Petrie in the 1979 miniseries that we talked about on the show quite recently, uh, Salem's Lot. He stood out really well. I mean, we spoke when we spoke about um, Salem's Lot of how good the child actors were. And as the young Mark Petrie, he was really, really well placed. Yeah, he never really made a huge name for himself over the years, but did pop up in quite a lot of shows and films in the 80s, such as Enemy Mine, Simon & Simon, Murder, She Wrote, Gunsmoke, Bionic Woman, Shazam, Wonder Woman, Killer in the Family, Final Verdict. So was a jobbing actor, just never quite hit that big time before retiring from the screen by the mid-90s. Yeah, he passed away at the very young age of 62. I think if you don't remember him from Salem's Lot, then you probably remember him from Little House on the Prairie. And then we found out that the actress Sylvia Sims who I know best for her role in the fantastic uh, 1950s war film, Ice Cold in Alex, uh, died peacefully, according to her family, on the 27th. Sims was an English actress, very prominent for stage and screen, best known for films such as Woman in a Dressing Gown, Ice Cold Alex, No Trees in the Street, Victim, the teenage, My Teenage Daughter, 
And in recent years, she was known for a recurring role in EastEnders. And in 2006, she played the Queen Mother in the 2006 biopic, The Queen. Yes, she was well-loved and she was incredibly respected. Uh, And she had an amazing body of work. We mentioned Ice Cold and Alex and and EastEnders. She was in Doctor Who. She appeared opposite Cliff Richard in probably his best film, Expresso Bongo, um, and began her acting career at the tender age. Of 19. Passing away at age 89, it's safe to say that a huge body of work out there is a great lasting testimony to one of the finest actresses of the past century from the UK. And that's this week's The News. Still with us, still enjoying the pod. And if you haven't subscribed, then our big question to you is, come on, why not? If you want to hear more from The Film File, head over to your favourite podcast platform and search for The Film File, which you can now find on Audible. Hit the subscription button and remember to leave a like because you like us, really like us. Want to know more about The Film File? You can find us all over the show, can't they, Andy? Just hop onto social media, whatever social media you use. Have a search for Film File UK. We're probably on there. At the moment, as I've mentioned, on Instagram. I'm currently posting my Oscars watches as I'm finding them. So if you're trying to track down those films, Instagram is what you want to be following at this point in time. And you can get in touch with us directly. We've gone through some of the Oscars stuff. Why not tell us what you think should win on each of the categories? Fire us an email over, podcast at filmfile.uk. Anything film related, entertainment related, whatever you want us to talk about or look at or review, that's what you want to do. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. This week's Deep Dive, well, it's going to be a little bit different because we're not just talking about one film or even a franchise. We're going to be talking about one of the longest running British comedy films ever. A series, sequences, very hard to classify because we're going to be talking about the carry-on films. What is there to fear from a warrior who wears nothing underneath his skirt? Think how frightening it would be to have such a man charging at you with his skirts flying in the air. Thanks a lot, honey. Thanks for the lift. I have a good ass, no? It says it. He tried to peep at one nurse sunbathing in the semi-nude, half-stripped another, and attacked a third one in her bath. I wonder what he has for breakfast. I've got it. I've got it. Well, you didn't get it off me. Oh, what a lovely-looking pair. Took the words right out of my mouth. The film series began in 1958 and ran right through to 1978. And to be honest, a little bit after that. The films are purely a British tradition, based largely on double entendre and innuendo. There were 31 films, four TV Christmas specials, one television series, a West End stage show, and they were all the brainchild of Peter Rogers and Gerald Thomas, sole producer and director, respectively. And the names employed were a regular group that consisted predominantly of Sid James, Kenneth Williams, Charles Hawtrey, Joan Sims, Kenneth Connor, Peter Butterworth, Hattie Jakes, Terry Scott, Barbara Windsor, Bernard Breslau, Jim Dale and Jack Douglas. And the carry-ons compromised the largest number of films of any British series only next to the James Bond films. Andy. The hardest thing to start is where do you start with a carry-on film? Do you start right back at the beginning or do you go to your favourites? How do we start talking about carry-on? You start by 
you know, the notable in the public conscience for the seaside postcard style of bawdry humour. But to say that that's all they were does them a huge disservice because that's kind of what they became. But they didn't start necessarily in that way. There's farcical elements in them. There's slapstick humour. There's social satire buried within quite a few of them. Carry on cabby and regardless, for example, are strong examples drawing upon social politics, but giving it a comedy slant. At the start of the series, you've got carry on sergeant is a more ealing comedy kind of approach. It's very low on the bordery aspects and just very British in nature. It wasn't like how the rest of the series turned out, was it? It featured uh, William Hartnell, who later went on to be Doctor Who, uh, Bob yep. Monkhouse. Uh, yes, we were introduced to Kenneth Williams, Kenneth Connor, Charles Hawtrey, Hattie Jakes and Terry Scott. But it doesn't feel like the rest of them do because it, it was originally just going to be a standalone film. Yep. Williams was in the most of all the films, 25 appearances he had over the 31 films he's the mainstay it's interesting with the carry-on films because if you'd never seen a carry-on film if you met someone who'd never seen a carry-on film how would you select the one that you think they might enjoy i've got some friends who don't particularly like the carry-on films who i've introduced them to films from the carry-on series that they didn't know existed and they went oh actually that one was quite good i think there is something within them for all tastes of comedy it's just that most people remember them as just being these uh, bawdry comedies with Sid James going, rah, 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 rah. And uh, Kenneth Williams going, oh, behave. And miss some of the subtlety and nuance that there is over the whole series. And that's because of how most of us were introduced to them. Most of us in the UK were introduced to them by reruns and reruns and reruns of the regular five of them that would always get shown on ITV or BBC. Yeah. That's things like Carry On Up the Kyber. Carry on nurse, carry on doctor, you know, the generic ones that play into that farce and bawdry nature. Yeah, I mean, they are a product of their time. And if you're going to talk about them retrospectively, yes, by modern standards, they can be problematic. But you've got to look at them as for what they were. They were the uh, epitome of what British humour was. Uh, it was farcial. It was uh, uh, full of innuendo. It was uh, a little bit silly. It was the embarrassment of being an everyday working guy in the most ridiculous of, of, of situations. So there were very, very working class humour in the same way as you said, the saucy postcards of the time. Whilst most people who haven't seen the whole lot of the series will think like when you say carry on, they'll just think of Frankie Howard up in, like, in a bed, hospital bed with a thermometer on his, in his bottom. Like I said, that you can recommend something to everyone. You got films during the sixties that they delivered, such as Carry On Screaming. So if you know someone who loves classic horror films, give them Carry On Screaming because they will get the fact that that's a loving comedy homage to that genre. Carry On Cowboy. So if you've got someone who loves westerns, Carry On Cowboy is a great entry point. Carry On Spying, like pastiching one of my favourites, all the Bond and the um, Armand Flint and other capers, and Carry On Cleo which uh, absolutely looks fantastic. And yeah, we'll, we'll mention why. But... The Hollywood feature, wasn't it? The big film at the time, that was, there's Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra that came out in 1963. The 70s era saw a decline in the series. Carry On Matron repeated the tone of the earlier Doctor or Nurse films, which had already been wrung dry, not only by the Carry On films, but other similar comedies that had been churned out by the British industry. Carry On Abroad sets the template that every British sitcom of the 70s would adopt with everyone going on holiday into a, an absolute disaster. Carry On Dick 
shows some promise on paper, drawing upon the legend of Dick Turpin. But it, it became just the smut and the bordering nature. And by the time Carry On Emmanuel came around and killed the franchise, the last fizz from the glass had gone and the whole affair was tepid. There was an attempt at a comeback, wasn't there? With yes. Carry On Columbus. Yes. And interestingly, you know, I, I've got the Carry On collection on DVD and it's the complete collection, including the TV series. But Carry On Columbus isn't a part of it. I'm quite pleased that it isn't a part of it because it doesn't feel a part of it. It was an attempt to revive the series with a modern lineup of alternative comics of the time, alongside old hands Jim Dale, Bernard Cribbins, Leslie Phillips, June Whitfield and John Pertwee. Frankie Howard was signed up to star in it, but sadly passed away before production began. And it was the last film that Gerald Thomas directed before he passed away in 1993. And the film was a mess. The mishmash of the alternate comics of the time didn't help because none of them gelled well enough. You had like the mainstays of um, the comic strip presents era, like Alexis Sale, Rick Mayall, etc. Nigel Planer, Julian Clary was in there. All the cream of the crop of that modern era of comics. But the lacklustre script makes you feel that they wrote a deliberately bland script, hoping that these comics would improvise around it. And they didn't. I've never seen it. Uh, it's one of the only ones that I've uh, uh, I've never watched. As a fan of the Carry On series, it's a horrible film to watch. I mean, it's a bad comedy in the first place, but it's horrible to watch because you see Jim Dale just completely, yeah, he, he just destroys everything that he ever had was great. Jim Dale was a great underdog in the Carry On franchise. He always played that underdog character, that jittery, nervous, can't be successful with women or in like careers who like you, you're rooting for throughout. In this, he was wasted. Leslie Phillips just comes on to do his oh my's and oh ding dong. And that's about it. June Whitfield is barely memorable from it. The whole thing just feels, it feels like it's using Carry On name in order to try to sell it whilst not understanding what Carry On was all about. It's a shame. So let's talk about the ones that, that actually mean something to us. I mean, there's so many to choose from. Where where would you start? Which, which are your standouts? Well, I've already mentioned it once, Carry On Cleo. Carry On Cleo, a film that cut costs by using costumes and sets that were intended for Cleopatra before that production moved to Rome. It looks stunning. It looks amazing. And it's like the fact that it looks so polished certainly works to lift it above the rest of the series for me. Amanda Barry is kooky and stunningly beautiful as Cleopatra. I've met Amanda Barry. She was fantastic. And all the core cast... The caricatures that they played over the series were completely refined by this point. You've got Sid James playing Mark Antony as only Sid James could. He's a growling womanizer. Jim Dale, like I said, he's an underdog. And in this, he's a British tribal um, outcast underdog character. Kenneth Williams, though, steals this film in his turn as Julius Caesar. He has some of the best lines of dialogue and wordplay that the series ever saw. Such as like, have you forgotten my slogan? Neil expectore in omnibus. No spitting on public transport. And then infamy, infamy, infamy. infamy. They've all, They've got, all it got infamy. It infamy. I mean, that is just a gem. And I've I watched this. This was one of my favourites growing up. Whenever it was shown on BBC or ITV, I'd always make a beeline to make sure I'm watching this one. I've seen it three times on the big screen over the years, and I love it. I've rewatched this the most out of all the Carry On films. It, like I say, it's the fact that they, they used actual sets and costumes that were designed for a much bigger budget film that makes it feel more polished. Marvellous film. I've got to go with Carry On Screaming. It's the one that Sid James didn't do because he was recovering from a heart attack and was replaced by Harry H. Corbett. It's the longest running time of all the Carry On films. 
and it is divine. The monsters, odd bods, are absolutely brilliant. It's the right side of scary. I remember it, yeah. seeing it as a little kid and being scared and laughing at exactly the same time. <laughs> uh, got a lot of love for this one for Carry On Screaming. It's one of the best horror horror parodies that's ever been made. Well, it just sends up Hammer perfectly. Yes. I'll also throw in, this is a one that I didn't watch until quite late on. It's not one that I watched growing up, so it's not that fondness for it because it's I've grown up with it. This is one that I only watched in my mid to late 20s for the first time. And that's Carry On Sergeant, the very first one. And I've got a lot of love for this. It wasn't bawdry humour at that time. Monkhouse is fantastic, playing to his strengths and his wit and his charm. It's a very, very British humour piece that wouldn't necessarily directly translate, even though the template of it has translated successfully in the US because the template for this film, bunch of misfits and outcasts getting recruited and going through basic training. Well, we've all seen Stripes. We've all seen Police Academy. This is that film. If you've never watched Carry On Sergeant, if you watch it, you will spot everything that you've seen in other similar comedies from America from like the 70s, 80s and 90s, which took that approach. It was groundbreaking. And it was a great discovery to discover this when I started collecting the DVD collection because seeing how the series started and then watching the evolution over the following films, it's really refreshing to see that it wasn't all about you know, Kenneth Williams, like all shy and coy when um, the matron's trying to come on to him. This showcases that period in British comedy history where, like I said, it was going from the Ealing comedies over to something different. And this is like that stepping stone in between. It's a very, very good film and it stands up really well. I'm going to go next with Follow That Camel. And you're probably thinking, why doesn't it have Carry On at the beginning as a prefix? Well, the distributors at the time didn't like the Carry On series. So they were forced to strike a deal that didn't include Carry On on as part of the title. That included the great Don't Lose Your Head. But my favourite was Follow That Camel, which was a take on Bo Shest. It's not the best but it had the great Phil Silvers in, and I like it just so much for having Phil Silvers in, who was always always going to be Bilko to me, and he brought that same kind of sense of humour to it. But yeah, they're just two each from us of the highlights of the series, with 31 films in there out there. Like I said, I guarantee there's at least one carry-on film for everyone yeah. out there, because they pastiched and they homaged so many other things that something in there you will latch onto and go, I love what they're doing here. There's been many unmade films over the years. In the 60s, there was Carry On Spaceman, which was intended to be a satire of the space race. There was Carry On Dallas, which was a spoof of US soaps in the 80s. Carry On Escaping, which was going to be going to be made in 1973, but never got off the ground. It was going to poke fun at The Great Escape and other wartime escape films. The complete script of that is printed in the complete A to Z of everything Carry On and is well worth reading through. Over the last two decades, we've had Carry On London, which had a script and was in pre-production between 2003 and 2009. But after Peter Rogers passed away in 2009, it got abandoned. And then in 2016, we had more news of plans to revive the series with Carry On Doctors and Carry On Campus. But again, that fizzled out. The most recent news was back in 2020, when Brian Baker said they still intend to revive the series. And there's current plans are to remake Carry On Sergeant with a modern take. So, um, Stripes then. Yeah, I I <laughs> hope they don't because because it is a time and a place. It's boardiness, it's, uh, it's off-coloured jokes or a time capsule to the period that they were made. And I don't think that kind of humour is, is what the world wants nowadays. Most of them looked pretty poor. They were edited 
badly. The effects and the sets were always poor. They were all over the place as far as, as comedy goes. But all of that is what made them absolute classics and, and absolutely beloved. Whether you think they outlived their usefulness, yes, they did. As Andy just said, there's there's at least one in there that you will love that you grew up with. They probably resulted in like a, a boom in sales of penny whistles as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, if we want to find any of the Carry On films, uh, where can we find them? Your best place to stop. I've mentioned it quite a few times over the past couple of years. Britbox. Britbox is your place for everything British. And there's a fair chunk of the Carry On films on there. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy has had the pleasure of seeing The Fablemans, a film that I'm going to catch probably later this week and looking forward to it. Now, I've heard it called Steven Spielberg's classic. I'm, I'm open to debate on that one because I, how can you call one Steven Spielberg film a classic after the amount of films which are absolutely classics? But Andy, what was your take on The Fablemans? In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. What kind of movie are we gonna make? Hundred dollars for a hobby? It's not a hobby, Dad. You dismiss what he does. It's playful or imaginative. Family art. It'll tear you in two. I don't want to disappoint you. You do what your heart says you have to. Perhaps Spielberg's most personal film to date, The Fablemans focuses on a young Sammy Fableman who falls in love with the wonder of movies after he's taken by his parents to see the greatest show on earth. Being obsessed with the train crash scene in particular, he's overjoyed when he receives his own train set amongst his Hanukkah presents and sets about recreating the crash. When his mother tells him to use his father's 8mm camera to film it so he can see it over and over again without risking damaging his toys, Sammy puts together his first edited mini-film, starting an obsession that impacts on his life. However, whilst the joy of making films takes hold, it also leads to him discovering some secrets years later when he picks up moments on film that his mother thought were carefully hidden. This coming-of-age tale is not simply a love letter to the movies, but due to the personal nature of the tale, it's drawing from Spielberg's own early life. It's the director's most intimate, heartbreaking and emotional film. Sammy's life echoes many aspects of Spielberg's early years, with the relationship between his father and mother explored, his struggles from bullying as a young Jew in America, and most of all, his escape into the majesty of filmmaking. The films that Sammy edits together are all versions of the ones that Spielberg himself cut together when he was a youngster, and each highlight the influences that grew him into the legend he is. Common aspects seen in Spielberg's films, a fractured family environment, a young boy who feels like an outsider, the suburban settings are shown here in their purest form as we see glimpses of the reality that Spielberg grew up in, reflected through Sammy. Yes, there are fictionalised elements within, but this could quite easily have been seen as a biopic about Spielberg, directed by the man himself. And as such, he's taken great care to ensure that it's presented in a powerfully moving sometimes brutally honest manner. It has laughs, it has tears, it's got a strong story, and it has a cast perfectly placed throughout. Gabrielle Labelle is a solid central player as Sammy, full of wonder at the world when seen through the eye of a Super 8 camera. Paul Dano delivers as strongly as you'd expect in the role of his sometimes emotionally distant father. Seth Rogen demonstrates that he's more than just the typical stoner comedy actor that he's most known for, whilst Michelle Williams gives a movingly powerful turn as Sammy's mother. Williams, in one particular scene, 
goes from confusion to excitement to joy to wonder before heading into distress, regret and sorrow, all in the space of about a minute, with a focus purely on her face and sells it all entirely. There are a wealth of great names offering support, sometimes fleeting, such as Judd Hirsch's visit as Sammy's granduncle, who used to work in the circus, and towards the end of the film, the much-commented-on cameo by David Lynch, which sets up a glorious bit of fun on the final frame. The whole ensemble ensures that not one moment of screen time is wasted, and this is a film that draws you in, hits you right in the feels, and captivates in the same way young Sammy was captivated by his very first cinema trip. Of course, as with all the best Spielberg films, the final unseen character is the score by the ever-excellent John Williams, which taps into all the right beats from start to finish. For anyone who has a love of film, this is so relatable and heartfelt. As someone who used to reenact moments from his favourite films with various action figures and Lego sets as a kid, and indeed as an adult, this hit me right in the emotional core. So it seems to me that Spielberg's covered a lot of this ground before in E.T., you know, which I think is, is, a, is his most personal film. But I'll let you know when I've seen it what my views are on it. The next film landed on Netflix this week. Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy you people you're dating a black girl i've never felt so understood by somebody in my entire life whether you like it or not we kind of go together now you're my boo come on i'm gonna ask her to marry me do you plan to talk to our family yeah i just haven't had the chance to meet them what's going on tell me about life how are you this is your white granddaddy come back to haunt me what now this is my fault <clears throat> So you want to marry my daughter? Yes. Yes, I do. Well, Ezra, you could try. Directed by Kenya Barris, You People was co-written by star Jonah Hill and is a rom-com play on the guess who's coming to dinner, meet the parents, clashes of cultures. Focusing on an interracial couple who plan to marry, it follows all the beats you'd expect, offers nothing new to the genre and is the very definition of a film that is just okay. Jonah Hill plays Ezra Cohen. He co-hosts a podcast with his friend Mo, played by Sam Jay, where they discuss African-American issues. When Ezra mistakes the car of Amir and Muhammad, played by Lauren London, for an Uber, the meet-cute experience leads to them connecting, romance blossoms, you know the story. But when Ezra decides to pop the question, he finds that Amira's parents are quite disapproving of him. Her father, Akbar, played by Eddie Murphy, wants his daughter to marry a Muslim and makes it very clear what his thoughts are. On the opposite side, Ezra's family seem to try too hard to accept Amira, awkwardly trying to relate to black issues in an almost offensive manner. With the wedding planning going ahead, Ezra and Amira find that their families risk destroying their happiness. This is also formulaic throughout, and despite some really strong turns by the cast, it all feels wasted as the material tries to be a rom-com and social commentary at the same time, but struggles to get any of the balance right. Eddie Murphy is on great form, and some of the best moments come in the interplay between him and Jonah Hill. And whilst Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Duchovny are both great, they also start to great pretty early on. By the time the third act limps to a predictable conclusion, you're still not entirely sure that any resolution within was earned. Coming from Barris, who's given us blackish on TV, I expected something a bit more bitingly sharp. Instead, this is just another generic rom-com that we've seen churned out in various guises so many times, distinctly average throughout. Okay, I, I saw the trailer, and that was the first impression that I got from it, so um, I, I'm not drawn to it, I'm afraid. I, I like both performers. I don't know, I'm just not drawn to it. And finally, from you... Teen Wolf, the movie. There's something rather than back. 
The breach on the floor is pretty unstable. I have someone who has a special talent for these kinds of things. We call him the Alpha. Right, like a dog. No, like a wolf. If you can heal, you could play tomorrow night. You're my son, but you gotta be willing to learn. Cancel my tour clock and the hold of my calls. Are you gonna be in a meeting? Yeah, kind of. She's here. I have to admit to not being up to speed on the Team Wolf lore. I've caught a scattering of episodes of the show over the years, and whilst I found I enjoyed them, they never hooked me enough to get immersed. But even with that said, I was intrigued by this film, notably due to it being directed by Russell Mulcahy. And so, I gave it a shot. So the story has it that a terrifying evil has emerged, threatening the returning cast, and only a werewolf like Scott McCall, played by Tyler Posey, can gather the pack needed to face down the dark threat. The first act reintroduces audiences to the cast from the series. Well, those that came back, as a few names didn't sign back on. And as someone who didn't really know these characters anyway, I felt it did a decent enough job of giving me some insight into their lives, so I didn't feel left behind. I could get on board with it. Once the film kicks into gear in the second act, it offers some decent spectacle, a scattering of drama, and it builds decently into a final confrontation. The film looks polished, and the effects work is solid enough, even if the script is a little generic and by the end feels more like a backdoor pilot for a spin-off or a new era of the Team Wolf series. As a fan of Mulcahy's output over the years, I've got a huge love for Highlander that I've spoken about many times on the show, and I've got a soft spot for even films such as Resident Evil Afterlife. His style is present in this film, and it helped me enjoy it enough that I now feel like backtracking and giving the whole series a watch. Not great, but not terrible, is the final summation on Team Wolf the movie. We were talking about this before we got on air. I saw the pilot because it was uh, directed by a friend of mine, but I never stayed with the series. So I know that the lead from the series hasn't made it back into this particular movie. I don't know. I'll, I'll probably get around to it. I've been spending my week watching films and Lee. I even mentioned it as something that I had my eye on last week, but I've not got around to watching it. So I feel so jealous that you've already started on Lockwood & Co. Lucy Carlyle. I'm Anthony Lockwood. This is George. Welcome to Lockwood & Co. How about we find ourselves a ghost? Don't move. Run! I don't enjoy meeting agents who burn homes to the ground. Pay up or get shut down. I've got an intrinsic feeling that you will enjoy this because I think it's it's right up your street. So this is based on a young adult's uh, novel series. It's kind of an alternative version of London set during the mid-80s. And in this alternate version of the UK, marauding ghosts and spirits are threatening the lives of everyday people. In fact, so much so that there are curfews at night. The series is based around the young Lucy Carlyle, and she's got psychic abilities, and she senses the presence of apparitions and spirits. She joins a small ghost hunting operation run by two ambitious teens, George and Anthony Lockwood, the Lockwood of the series. I don't think I'd have gone to this until I realised that it was Joe Cornish who had directed and written the series, and his humour and his style is all over it. From what I know, it sticks closely to the books. It's at all points fun. It does have an element of sort of funhouse horror to it. It's got a, a an almost 
Sherlock type vibe to it, where the characters live in a in a Baker Street style house. The ghosts are scary. There's a bigger subplot from the episode that I've seen so far, and I've only seen episode one. And there's enough in it for young people and people like myself, a little bit not the target market to really get their teeth into. I thought this was an, an impressive start. Some great world building, some fantastic character development, great cast. I am in for the series. I think this as a, a YA supernatural saga is cut above the rest of the stuff that Netflix is showing right now. And it's his Britishness about it. Kind of reminds me of Yes, Sherlock and a little bit of the 1960s Avengers. That sounds like a good sell, and I'm definitely going to be on it. My son has already watched it all. He ploughed through it. I'm looking forward to getting getting back into it. I thought it was a, a great start. Apparently, Joe Cornish wants multiple seasons because the story really goes somewhere, and it does have a definitive end. Anyway, that's what's out now. What's coming up soon? So this week is going to be quite packed in cinemas because um, we've got a whole lineup of films for everyone. Puss in Boots finally arrives in the UK. Knock at the Cabin, M. Night Shyamalan's latest film, and The Whale, which is getting a lot of attention around awards season. interesting. I don't know if that film's for me. I don't know why. The trailer reduced me to tears, so the film itself is probably going to destroy me. I'm hoping to get a chance to see all three of these before next week. If not, we'll carry over reviews of what I do see for the following week. And there's also um, the film about a donkey that's getting some awards buzz, E.O. We mentioned this in the best international foreign film in the Oscars nominees. On Now TV and Sky, uh, I wanted to see this last year, but didn't get around to watching it. Father Stew, the Mark Wahlberg starring film based on the true life drama of Father Stuart Long, amateur boxer turned priest. Top Gun Maverick lands on Now TV and Sky for those people who haven't got Paramount+. Plus. It'll take your breath away. On Amazon, Brian and Charles lands this week, as does Beast. And on Disney+, Plus, Wakanda Forever finally arrives. Well, that's going to be the big one this week. So it's quite a decent week for a good range of films across the services and at the cinema. And it's quite a decent week that we'll be covering again next week, because now it's time... To say farewell, yes, it's the end of the show. But if you're thinking they've not done their neat thing, they're about to. Andy, your neat thing, something that you've enjoyed uh, that you want to share with the folks out there. So I'm going to keep it simple and revert back to a neat thing that I think I've brought up twice on the show. In fact, I definitely have. Oh, you're going back to a neat thing. At this time of the year, I like to remind people on the run up to Oscars of the Meet the Awards app that I use to track my Oscar watching history. It's a brilliant app, free to get on the Google Play Store. I'm not sure if there's a version on Apple Store, but it's been updated to add in this year's categories and you can tick the boxes, turning them to green when you've watched the films so you can keep track of what your Oscar watching history is. And it tracks back every year so you can go back through all of your history of all the Oscars and mark off which films you've seen. There's stats in there to be able to see what percentage of films that you've watched from different categories, how many films in it overall you've seen. And on the night of the Oscars, they usually make it live that you can then put your predictions in and try to score points, which you can then compare with friends, family, whatever, as to who scored the most points on your estimations of what's going to win each year. It's a great free app. And if you are as much of a fan of awards season or trying to track down awards films as I am, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource to keep track of what you've actually been watching. I know pretty much everyone in the film community is now using Letterboxd to track your film watching, but specifically for Oscars, this is the app that I throw you towards. Meet the awards, completely free on the Google Play Store. 
get it downloaded and installed on your phone. So my neat thing this week, and we talked about The Last of Us TV show earlier, uh, mine is the HBO The Last of Us official podcast, and that's the official companion piece to the new series. It's presented by Troy Baker, who voiced Joel in the game, and it's incredibly insightful as he chats every week after the the episodes drop with Craig Mazin and Neil Duckerman, the uh, creatives behind it. And and what you get from it is some of the decision-making that the creatives have chosen that they know go against the game. So especially with episode two, with how the infection is passed on and the fact that they're not using the spores. If you remember the game, the Mm. one thing that you had to do when you see the spores was put a a gas mask on. But so far in the series, they haven't done that. It's it's an incredible, insightful, not into the making of a TV show, but into the decisions made by the writers of it. It's thoroughly enjoyable. It's only very short. It's about half an hour. So it's well worth a listen. It gives you an insight into the show. Uh, It lands almost after the show has run. So if you want to cheat, you can get it after it's landed in HBO. But it's worth a listen just to learn more about this fantastic series. And it has been announced that there is going to be a Last of Us season two. Of course there is. Of course there is. It's been huge. Andy, did you know that the the first episode they are are now showing on YouTube for free? Yes, I saw that they've done that. It's done, clearly, to try to get subscribers. But it's a great way for people who don't have access to Sky or HBO Max to get a taste of what they're missing out on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And that's it for uh, us this week, guys. Uh, We'll be back again with another film file next week. Anything planned over the next week, Andy? (laughs) I gave you the list of films that are coming out this week. You know what my life is basically going to be because I've got my eye on pretty much all of those films. But aside from that, again, it's film-wise and it is just trying to tick all those boxes on all the more obscure Oscar nominations and tracking them all down. I love this time of year. I get so excited uh, tracking down, like, obscure documentaries or obscure short films and i love immersing myself into them i've had an incredibly busy and complicated january i can take my foot slightly off the gas chill out a bit and uh, and just get on with with stuff that i enjoy that's not to do yeah. with submitting my tax for instance so we'll see you next week take care my friend and you and matron you're male doctor doctor i know i'm male and what's more i can prove it Throw some confusion into the mix and put a weird accent on. I'm Arnold Meekin. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good. We've got deep dives galore, but before any of that, yes. No, we've got deep dives galore. We've just just done that. We've got pussy galore. Yeah. Oh, behave. Pussy. Um, All right. So stop it. Come off the back end of that. That's just reminded me of Father Ted. I just had a Father Ted moment. She's a lovely girl. She's a lovely girl. Oh, isn't she lovely? She's so What's that you say, Father? (laughs) So he's criticising these things that he doesn't watch. Anyway, going back to Thunderbolts, it has been described. (laughs) Getting back to Thunderbolts, it has been described. Still listening, still with us, this is The Film File. Yeah, the podcast about film geeks. The podcast from film geeks. Oh, stop. Start again. Uh, this week's dive 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 is this week's dive <laughs> but andy what was your take on the fablemans it was really good <laughs> great moving on <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that's andy's rate good from that one 
I've just brought up a, we understand each other with some difficulty, but we do understand each other. Big breaths, yes, and I'm only 16. <laughs> I've never seen eggs cracked more conscientiously or slowly. Speed, man. Speed is the essence. Do it the Haynes way. Lift and drop. <laughs> Mrs. Tucker, isn't it? What can I do for you? Well, I came to see you three months ago because I was a little bit worried about my husband being able to have a baby. Yes, that's right. He's a bit older than you, isn't he? 88. <laughs> yes, well, if you remember, you suggested it might be a good idea to take in a lodger. <laughs> you know where that's going. <laughs> well, it worked. I'm pregnant. This here was found in Slocum Woods. What? This here? Yes, that the... <laughs> I'm Camembert. I'm the big cheese. Yeah. <laughs> you may think you're a gentleman. Personally, I've got sore misgivings. You ought to put some talcum powder on them then. <laughs> That's a good skeleton. Did the last doctor leave it here? That is the last doctor. <laughs> Wait, stop. I think you just run them I'm all. a simple woman with simple tastes and I want to be wooed. Oh, you can be wooed as you like with me. <laughs> Have you got a large one? I've had no complaints. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs>